I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. One of the more important books of the season, made more urgent with the upcoming presidential elections in the Philippines in May, is the new one by Vicente El Rafael, The Sovereign Trickster, Death and Laughter in the Age of Duterte. It's an engaging book that looks at the contemporary Philippines with its roots in colonialism and conflict, and how the Duterte era is not an aberration, but a symptom within uh, counterinsurgency, neoliberalism, and the country's history of electoral violence. In a way, that explains the rise of Duterte six years ago when he was elected president, but also signals why it's not some passing fad. It still enjoys popular support, and the tone and rhetoric could continue even though the man himself is term-limited. Mr. Raphael, who joins me now, chronicles in his book how Duterte deploys his humor and obscenity, to gain the people's support, and then uh, how his projection of masculinity and misogyny has uh, evoked laughter, nervous or otherwise, amongst the people he rules. Vince also bears witness in the book to those who bear witness daily, the photojournalists who have covered Duterte's war on drugs. Some iconic images have emerged, and as he chronicles in this new book, the public's view on life and death has been altered as a result. Vicente Rafael is the award-winning Giovanni and Anne Costigan Professor of History in Southeast Asian Studies at the University of Washington in Seattle, where I've reached him. He was uh, educated at Ateneo de Manila and Cornell Universities. He has written several books on the history and cultural politics of the Philippines, including Contracting Colonialism, White Love and Other Events in Filipino History, The Promise of the Foreign, and most recently Motherless Tongues, the insurgency of language amid wars of translation. All, including this new book, have been published by Duke University Press. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, uh, Vicente Rafael. Professor Rafael, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. I appreciate you coming on because this is a, a country of, of my parents' birth. It's, it's a, a country whose politics I've followed over the years. Uh, I found the book... Uh, uh, such a terribly engaging book, fascinating with so many things that we could talk about. But uh, I'd like to start at the end of the book because you, you talk about how you're writing a book uh, uh, that ends pessimistically. I mean, um, we'd all like a hopeful blo- a book, but I mean, it is it is a bleak time, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yes, it is. It, it, although the very my postscript right. indicates some possibilities, but even that is. I'm kind of hedging my bets there. Sure, yeah. What, <laughs> yeah. what did you attempt to do when, when, when you started writing the book? I mean, this is, as you explained at the beginning of the book, this is not a, a sort of biography or a history of, of uh, Duterte, is it, is it? No, it's not. I, you know, I didn't actually start out wanting to write a book. What happened was when he got elected, uh, I started to follow uh, his his uh, trajectory, mm. and uh, you know, I was I was going to the Philippines a lot, uh, sometimes twice, three times a year. Uh, and so I was doing a lot of research, and I you know I was talking to people and so forth. And it started out I I started writing these short op-ed pieces and posting some uh, you know social media posts and so forth. Uh, and these in turn became uh, uh, sort of uh, larger and larger until they became these sort of essays. That try to make sense of Duterte, and that, that is essentially what the book is about. The book isn't isn't about saying, you know, this is what we should do, this is where we should go. It really is an attempt to make sense of Duterte to the best of my abilities, with with all its limitations and 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 foibles. So, yeah. 
So, so you're speaking to me from, from the United States. I'm here in Canada. Um, mm-hmm. d- does one who lives in either of our countries risk, mm-hmm. say, foisting our own sense of morality on a country where, you know, it is inevitably different? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think it's useful for, for those of us outside to look critically at what's happening there? Oh, yeah. I, you know, in fact, I was just uh, uh, having a conversation with Ruth Ben-Ghiat, who I don't know if you're familiar with the work. She's a historian at NYU, and she just wrote this book on strongmen from Mussolini to Trump. Oh, yeah, I've heard and, of that, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so she picked up my book, she read it, and she said, you know, it's, the, the, the coincidences are amazing. You know, the, yeah. the patterns, the overlapping uh, trends. I mean, just, there's, there's, uh, there's a lot of relevance thinking about Duterte from the global south and thinking about, you know, other sort of uh, strongman or dictatorial figures from Europe and the United States. So so there is a connection between the two. But at the same time, what I've tried to do with Duterte is I've tried to show what makes him different, what makes him specific, given the particular history of the Philippines uh, that's, of course, very different from, from the histories in Europe and, and, and the United States. Yeah. So, so you know, as you were speaking, I was just thinking, you know, he, he was elected in 2016, in the spring mm-hmm. of 2016. Donald Trump yeah. was elected in the fall. Um, yeah. You have you know, people like Putin and Bolsonaro throughout the, you know, in other countries in the world. Uh, one yeah. wonders, you know, is this a trend for the next 10, 15 years, say, around the world, this kind of leader? Yeah, yeah, well, I'm I'm not sure how much of a trend it is. I mean, for example, the current war in Ukraine uh, may turn out to be something completely different. Uh, mm-hmm. The elections, mid-year elections, and 2024 elections uh, could could you know point to a different direction. But uh, it is no secret, and I think this is common knowledge that uh, there has been a, 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 a drift, a global drift to the right uh, that's been going on for the last I don't know maybe. Uh, eight years, ten years, uh-huh. uh, and and it's it's produced all these all these dictatorial figures uh, in various places of the world. Uh, there's India with Modi. There's you know uh, Hungary. Uh, there's uh, Russia, of course, Putin yeah. and so forth and so on. So so it's definitely a global trend, and it's a global trend that uh, arises from particular kinds of conditions, global conditions that are fairly widespread in the world, and wherever you find these conditions, you'll find, you know, the tendency for, as they say, democracy to retreat and for dictatorships or for authoritarianisms to arise. So so when you look at Duterte's rise in, in the Philippines, um, mm-hmm. it, it's not an aberration, is it? I mean, it, it seems like when, when we read the history that you write at the beginning of the book, that mm-hmm. it, it seems inevitable, doesn't it? Not so much inevitable. I mean, you know, as you know in history, nothing's inevitable. But mm. it is understandable. Right. It is understandable, uh, and it, it 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 is part of a long history. It's not something that fell fell down from the skies like yesterday. You know, it it uh, certainly is connected with a long history of colonialism, uh, with counterinsurgency, with uh, the emergence of neoliberalism. As I tried to argue in the book, uh, these both have global as well as local uh, sort of resonances. Uh, and in the case of Duterte, uh, what he's done is he seized upon these conditions and used it to his own purposes, particularly uh, launching his uh, it's the now infamous uh, war on drugs, you know, that we're all, we're all very familiar with when yeah. it comes to Duterte, right? So, yeah. So, and, uh, 
Go ahead. And what he's, what he's done uh, with his rhetoric, uh, which is something that you unpack in the book, and I, I think yeah. it's just, just tremendous to read in your book um, how insidious it is. Um, the, the misogyny, the, the sexism, um, the, the scatological, the sexual as well. Um, right. It's very effective, isn't it? Oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, it's one of the key elements in his political style, which has always been attuned to governing by fear. And what Duterte has done is he's taken uh, sort of comedic resources, if you will, right? Uh, very local, very vernacular ways of joking, uh, highly infused with, you know, misogyny and sexism. But he's taken humor in order to establish, uh, you know, what some people have called uh, a, a sort of relations of conviviality mm. between the governed and the, gov- uh, between uh, the rulers and the rule, right? And this relations of conviviality then uh, produces a sense of community. But what underlies the sense of community is, of course, a sense of fear, right? That if you don't laugh at his jokes, you could be in trouble. So so there's that, you know, it's, it's like the bully who comes in and starts making fun of people, right? And you kind of laugh sometimes nervously. Sometimes you join in the laughter because you figure, well, this is the way to get in on the bully uh, so I can get something and I can get some protection and so forth and so on. But it, it, it's not difficult to understand. You see this in so many different uh, situations. And what Duterte has done is he's taken these tactics uh, and he's elevated them and used them in order, in order to produce this, this uh, particular style of ruling. Yeah, and it seems that that at the beginning, um, people might have thought, you know, he's a you know a regular guy, if you will, and that that's you know that's the image that he likes to play off—that he's the regular guy who right. doesn't doesn't uh, enjoy the frills of office or even say the work of the office um, mm-hmm. that much. And then, um, sort of the, with with his rhetoric, um, the, the humorous rhetoric, at least. Um, people might uh, write him off as harmless, and I think a lot of people did, didn't they? Well, it, you know, this is this is the thing about the Tarte is that that's why, hence the title of the book, The Sovereign Trickster, right? Yeah. The idea is that here's this guy who presents himself as this authoritarian ruler. On the other hand, he undercuts that position and shows, as you said, oh, I'm just a regular guy. You know, I just like to sit around and make jokes. And, you know, I sleep until, uh, you know, six o'clock at night and I get up and I do most of my work until two, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the idea is that, uh, he, uh, as it were, preempts any sort of criticism uh, that he's stupid, that he's dumb, and so forth. He preempts those kinds of criticisms, uh, and 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 then and then turns them around against his critics, uh, and so undercuts them. Uh, in a way, you could say he plays at subverting his own authority to prevent anybody else from doing so. Uh, and, and then, again, that becomes a very, as I said, that, that becomes part parcel of the, the sort of trickster character that he likes to play, uh, and, and uh, he's been very good at it. Well, what do you think motivates him? I mean, there's a fascinating part of the book where you talk about, um, say, the victims or the family yeah. or victims of the yeah. uh, war on drugs, and, and um, what might surprise people is that, that a lot of them feel vengeance. Um, a mm-hmm. lot of his motivations, I think, are mm-hmm. rooted in that, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I'm not sure about motivations. I, I, all I can speak to are his uh, approaches, his tactics, his strategies, uh, uh, ways, the, 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 the ways that uh, he 
uh, sort of sees the world in a particular way as divided between, you know, sort of citizens are worth protecting versus uh, these these social enemies, these abject figures uh, who are not even human and therefore uh, present an existential threat to society. And for that reason, uh, they should die. They deserve to die, right? Uh, and uh, so that's that's one of the ways in which he looks at the world, and it's that worldview that then he acts upon uh, precisely by uh, encouraging uh, police and vigilantes and so forth uh, to kill these these uh, these uh, uh, drug dealers and so forth, uh, and and people, particularly people in the communities that are massively impacted by these by these deaths, uh, come to even if they don't agree with that worldview, uh, they come to find a degree of predictability mm. and therefore a, a degree of assurance. Like okay, there's violence, there's fear. But at least we know why it's there, where it's coming from, and since I'm not a drug dealer, a drug dealer or a drug user, then I'm okay, right? Uh, and and this is very common. You, you hear this among ordinary people. They say, "Well, things are safer now now that the Torta is in power. Yeah. You know, I, I don't have to worry about walking home at night. I don't have to worry about thieves stealing my stuff, etc., etc., etc." So so there is that connection that he establishes once again on the basis of fear. Uh, and out of people's desire for security in uh, you know, a situation where, where things are very precarious. So, yeah. so, so when, when, we, when we see that uh, people are, are viewing him or his regime as, as you know, sort of navigating or, or negotiating trade-offs, if you will, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. what's the risk to, to, to a society, to a culture? I mean, have you seen the Filipino people themselves change as a result of, of who well, their president's I, I, been, say, the last six years? Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, the risks are enormous for one thing. As I, I was telling somebody else the other day, what's happened over the last six years is the sort of stuff that used to shock us, you know, the dead bodies yeah. on the streets, uh, the, the sort of obscene gestures and obscene discourse coming out of it, that has all been normalized. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's happened is that now nobody even talks about the extrajudicial killings. You don't see the pictures anymore. Uh, of course, there's still criticisms of his human rights violations. Attempts to sort of, uh, you know, get the uh, international criminal court to prosecute him, uh, and so forth and so on. But there is a sense in which his style of rule, you know, what some people have called dutartismo, a lot of that seems to have become normalized to the point where it's become so institutionalized. You hear other politicians repeating his vulgarities, uh, you know, supporting the drug war. Uh, and clearly, even when Duterte steps down, uh, there's no. Uh, once Duterte steps down, uh, you know, there's, there's every indication that uh, these are elements of this rule which will continue uh, beyond them. So, so that's that's one of the things that, that, that I worry about. Yeah, indeed. Um, the cover of your book, um, mm-hmm. it, it, it's such a uh, an evocative <coughs> and and just a remarkable image. And, and uh-huh. the last six years have been filled with, with, with iconic images, if you will, of, of, um, mm-hmm. for, for, um, that we're seeing out of the Philippines, especially when it comes mm-hmm. to the war on drugs. Part of your book bears witness to, to those who bear witness um, by taking these photos. Um, it, it's such an a, um, um, important part of, of, of the, the book in terms of, of what motivates say, those people who do that work on a daily basis. And, mm-hmm. and you just spoke a moment ago about how people aren't shocked by that anymore. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. What do you think that says about? Um, because at the same time, Duterte remains very popular, and if he ran for president or re-election again, he would probably be re-elected, wouldn't he? Um, there's a good chance. Yeah, yeah. there's a good chance he would be. So, yeah. so what? Yeah. Um, what do you think it says about the resistance, if you will, to him or to, to Dutertismo, as you, you you mentioned a moment ago? Yeah, yeah. This is the thing: is that I think that um, Duterte seems to be very strong, and his hold on power seems to be very secure. But I think it's it's worth underlining uh, the fact that uh, dissent has never ceased. Uh, mm. the, the people are uneasy; uh, they take exception uh, to his. Uh, uh, you know, claims of being able to take exception to the law. Uh, and you can see this in the work of journalists. Uh, you saw this in the work of the photographers. Mm -hmm. uh, there are groups of artists that have, you know, organized and, you know, tried to launch a campaign uh, criticizing him, uh, political movements that have emerged to criticize him and so forth. The problem, of course, is that uh, these movements tend to have fallen short, fallen short in the sense of actually resulting in any sort of transformative, having any sort of transformative effect. Now, will they have that transformative effect, effect in the future? I don't know. Uh, the coming elections uh, may be an indication of that if uh, someone like Lenny Robredo, who has been a persistent cr cr critic mm -hmm. of the Duterte winds, uh, then, then maybe the winds, that, that would be an indication that the winds are shifting. Uh, that, that what we thought of as someone who is a very powerful figure actually has feet of clay, as, as it were. So so we'll see, you know. And, and you mentioned Roberto a moment ago, who was elected six mm -hmm. years ago as, as vice president. Um, yes. Uh, 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 De Le Senator DeLima, who is in prison there. Uh, right. Um, and then Maria Ressa, of course. Uh, these are these are sort of his chief antagonists, his, his fiercest critics, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, mm -hmm. It really is fascinating to see how the role um, that they play as women, especially, um, yeah. is in reaction to sort of the misogyny of right. the sort of the rhetoric, isn't it? Right, right. For different reasons. I mean, in the case of of Lila Dulima, of course, uh, she became uh, his sworn enemy when she was uh, head of the Commission on Human Rights and began to investigate the killings in Davao mm. while he was mayor. Uh, and 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 uh, conducted an investigation in the Senate, uh, which drew his ire and, and led to her uh, imprisonment on, on on false charges of of supporting drug dealers and so forth. Uh, in the case of in the case of uh, Maria Ressa, uh, he has had other people do his dirty work for him, uh, trying to legally harass her mm -hmm. with tons and tons and tons of of, of court of court suits. Uh, uh, Cases and so forth. Uh, in in the case of uh, 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 who's the third one that uh, we were talking uh, about? Robredo and and oh yeah yeah yeah. Well, Lenny Robredo, of course, has, has been a persistent critic, and and he's tried to respond by you know defunding attempts to defund the office of the vice president, uh -huh. uh, making fun of her her appearances uh, and so forth and so on. Uh, and so and so yeah, I, I mean, these three women have been at the forefront of of criticizing his regime, and and again. We'll see what happens. I mean, uh, he certainly was not pleased with Ressa winning the, the Pulitzer Prize. And, and, uh, the Nobel you know, Prize, yeah. The yeah, Nobel Prize, I'm sorry. Uh, and, and, and uh, you know, here now we see Robredo surging uh, with our, all her huge rallies and her popularity. So so we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Um, the... Um, 
back to the photographs for just a second because um, yeah. they were extremely powerful when when they you know went across the wire, if you will, around the world. Um, yeah, and you yeah. mentioned a moment ago how um, they don't seem to shock anymore. Does, does that mean that the, uh, the 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 view of the Filipino when it comes to life and death has changed? You know, it, it, this is one of the things that's very interesting, and, and one of the things I speculate in the book uh, that one of the effects of the war and drugs is uh, to deliver this this severe trauma, this kind of social trauma, right, on people. And as you know, when you're a victim of a trauma, it's very difficult to speak out. It's very difficult to represent what it is you exactly experienced because you're still in the state of shock. And that's what I suspect a lot of people are still going through, right? So when I talk about the normalization of the drug war, a lot of it is a kind of in response to this traumatic effect of the drug war, you know, when, when it's very difficult for people to sort of uh, get a hold of themselves, as it were, uh, plus the fact that they're confronted with, you know, powerful forces that makes it very difficult to speak out, uh, starting, of course, with the presence of the police, mm-hmm. because, as you know, the police is a very powerful presence locally. Now, with regard to the photographs, I, mean, I think what happens to the photographs is exactly what happens to... Uh, photographs of, you know, uh, catastrophes of war and so forth. The first time you see them, you're shocked, and then you see them again, and it's less shocking. Uh, and, and, and there's a certain kind of uh, sort of familiarity uh, that you, you gain from looking at these photographs, uh, so they're not as shocking anymore. I think the task of the critic, and I consider myself, of course, as a critic, uh, is, is to find ways uh, to make the photographs shocking again, mm. right, to find ways to resituate them, uh, to save them, to archive them, so that they retain their capacity to be able to surprise and their capacity to be able to criticize. Uh, I tried to do that in this piece. I don't know if it's worked. I don't know what the photographers, photographers themselves think, but uh, I think that the photographs are valuable precisely for that reason and that they always retain uh, a certain residue. Uh, a certain way of being able to uh, speak the truth to power once again. Perhaps not now when things have become normalized, but perhaps in the future. I love what one, and I, I forgot to write down the name of the journalist, um, <laughs> who, who writes in the book about um, the work of, say, um, what they're attempting to do after the fact as a, as a photographer or as a reporter, in mm-hmm. that they're trying to piece together this life again that, that, that's been lost. Yeah, and I thought that was extremely powerful, and 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 it speaks to the work of journalism, that oh, yeah. um, that's that continues throughout this regime, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, right. No, exactly. I mean, you know, who is it who said that journalism is the first draft of history? And if you look at this book, I mean, my book, so much of it, it really is dependent on uh, journalistic coverage. I mean, yeah. I I wouldn't have been able to write this book without, you know, all these different uh, reporters and so forth, because it's happening very much in the present. So. Yeah. yeah. Um, you alluded a moment ago to um, uh, the role of the police. Um, yes. I'm fascinated uh, when you talk in the book about uh, how the relationship to authority has evolved in that mm-hmm. country. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the military has always played a, an important part, I guess, in, in, in the lives of, of Filipinos. Um, yeah. Has the, the relationship to police, especially when you have these vigilantes and these people who take the law into their own hands, yeah. Um, has that changed at all? I mean, how do you see it going 
forward, if you will. Yeah, yeah well, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about the police in the Philippines, uh, as you know, is that the police is nationalized. You know, unlike the Canada or the sure. United States, uh, police forces aren't beholden to local uh, officials. They're basically centralized. Uh, they're they're basically a you know just another military group uh, because because it's a, the officers and so forth they're all they're all organized as if they were a military group. So the police the police always looks two ways. On the one hand, they look outwards uh, towards the nation, and on the other hand, they look inwards towards the local communities. Uh, the, the, they have become more and more powerful, uh, and also, I should add, uh, uh, better and better funded. Uh, you mm. know, in the Philippines, uh, Congress allocates uh, what they call intelligence funds to different uh, uh, government agencies. Uh, these are slush funds that are unaccounted for. You don't know how much it is. Uh, you don't know what they're used for, and they never have to be accounted for. Uh, so the police gets this enormous amount of money, uh, which they probably use to pay off the vigilantes and so forth in the, in the killings, uh, as well as, you know, uh, uh, officials taking this money themselves. So that's one thing. The second thing is the police is badly paid. Mm. And because of that, uh, they're, they're, they're liable to be corrupt. They're liable to take bribes. But they're, and, and, and they frequently extort, right, from, from, the people they arrest and, and from uh, other people in the community. Uh, and finally, uh, the, the police are, are, are looked upon by local people uh, in the communities uh, very ambivalently, right? It's very ambivalent regards to the police on the one end. They know the police is out there extorting, uh, taking bribes and so forth, and capable of all sorts of violence. On the other hand, they see the police as a principle of order. Mm. But without the police, things get a lot worse. Right, so they look to the police to intervene, whether it's domestic violence, whether it's theft, uh, or whatever. Right, they have to; uh, they have no choice. Yeah, they yeah. go to the police in order to be able to sort of uh, find some authority figure in order to 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 uh, sort of uh, settle down whatever chaos and stuff that's happening in the community. So, so you know, you, they they don't like the police. At the same time, they have no choice but to look towards the police. So in my, you know, again, I was having this conversation the other day. Uh, I think real change, if you wanted to have real change in the way in which the country is governed, one of the places to really start is the police yeah. and practices of policing. So, yeah. And then all these things, uh, as, you, as you point out at the beginning of the book, uh, the, yeah. the system of elections, uh, death squads, the police itself, they all right. have their roots in, in colonialism. And, you know, we talk in, in this country here in Canada about decolonization when it comes to, say, the relationship between the government and, and Native people. Mm -hmm. um, one wonders, is um, could that be a, a possibility in the Philippines? Yeah, no there's, no, there's no question about it. Policing in the Philippines really begins as an extension of colonial rule. Uh, and therefore, the practice of policing has always been a kind of counterinsurgent measure, you know, beginning with the Spanish colonial era and then intensifying during the American colonial era and the post-war era, uh, Japanese occupation and post-war era. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so policing has always had this uh, sort of coercive, counterinsurgent, and deeply conservative uh, uh, sort of function in the country. Yeah. And so um, is there a movement to sort of the kind of decolonization that we see in Canada in the Philippines? Or, or, or is it so ingrained in the system? I mean, the, the, yeah. the Constitution is, is, you know, written almost like the American one. 
that, um, say, the politics possibly can't change there even? You know, I, I, actually, the current constitution of the Philippines is just written uh, shortly after the overthrow of Marcos. Uh, the, the 1987 constitution is a very, very liberal constitution. It has all kinds of protections for human rights, all kinds of protections for workers' rights, uh, uh, and so forth. So, so th- there's nothing wrong with the constitution itself because it was written by a bunch of uh, sort of uh, adherents of liberal democracy at that point, right? Uh, and that there really hasn't been too many changes. The problem, of course, is enforcing the Constitution, mm-hmm. making sure that the Constitution works. Um, and and uh, so so that's one thing. Yeah. And the second thing is uh, there's always been attempts to reform, to liberalize, to move forward, and to change things. There's never been shortage. There's never been a shortage of that. Uh, expand democratic space and all that stuff. Uh, the problem, of course, is that these attempts always meet up with these larger, uh, more conservative, more reactionary forces uh, that prevent uh, these 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 uh, changes uh, from taking place. You know, that's that's again part of a, a larger colonial and post-colonial history in the Philippines. So these attempts at decolonization, what we call decolonization, uh, uh, these attempts never stop. I mean, they're always there. Uh-huh. On the other hand. Uh, they, uh, you know, it's very difficult for them to succeed given the institutional and cultural uh, sort of obstructions uh, underway. So, right. um, yeah. We're coming up to, to the May 2022 elections, the presidential mm-hmm. election there. Um, what's um, You spoke a moment ago about um, how you uh, wrote the book, you know, with your sources, especially in ter- terms of the journalism on the ground, if you will. Um, disinformation is something that, that all media is sort of contending with. It, it, it's at a larger scale in the Philippines, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's very much so. Uh, you know, starting with the kinds of stuff that gets through Facebook and Twitter, and then you've got you know Cambridge Analytica, mm-hmm. which uh, has played a, a sort of important role in pushing, for example, the candidacy of uh, Marcos Jr. You know, Bong Bong Marcos. Who's uh, ahead in the polls right now? So yeah, uh, the whole process of disinformation, and as as Maria Ress has been very good at pointing out, this is this is a very very serious problem in the Philippines. Yeah, yeah. Um, th- th- there are. Um, uh, pardon me. There is a chapter in the book where you talk about um, Ramona Diaz's film Motherland. Um, yeah. I, I started yeah. watching it the other night. I, I got it off of Amazon. I bought the DVD. Uh, it's yeah. such a fascinating view onto uh, yeah. what's happening on the ground there, isn't it? Yes, no, I, I mean, I love that film. Uh, well, I love all of Ramona's films. I right. think she's a fantastic exactly. documentarian. Yeah. yeah, the best thing about that film, though, is that there's no voiceover, you know? Oh, yeah, uh, and, that's and, right. And, and so, it, it, so it opens the film up to the voices of the, 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 the people in, in, who appear in the movie. Uh, and that's what I thought was so fascinating. Uh, it was sort of like a ground-up, uh, it, it was sort of a vision of how a certain kind of, you know, what I've been calling biopolitics, uh, how it operates from the ground up, uh, especially around the very, very vexed issue of reproductive health. So, yeah. And and there have been some some good movies. I mean, uh, uh, Ramona's film on uh, Maria Ressa's is something that everybody's watched. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and yeah, sure, sure. Lauren Greenfield's film as well. Yeah, on, yeah, um, yeah, on yeah. Imelda, on Imelda, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 There's some. There's a an allusion to um, Alex uh, Arumpak, 
um, her documentary. Uh, I found it played here in Vancouver during one of the the, the I think the documentary film festival mm-hmm. last year. I haven't year. seen that one yet. Aswan, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's a powerful yeah, film, yeah. especially when it looks at the the journalism. Um, right, you know, the right, right. photographers at night. Mm-hmm. Um, I could talk all afternoon with you, Vince, on on your book. It's such a fascinating one. Um, by the way, we, we we began the conversation about um, how pessimistic the, the the view is. I mean, where is your hope in in terms of the future, and especially after the, these May elections? Um, well, you know, like I said, the election certainly is one one place to look uh, to see if you know. Things are changing, where the winds are blowing, and so forth. Uh, and, and it's certainly encouraging to see the kind of energy that someone like Lenny Robredo has managed to has managed to sort of whip up, you yeah. know, among her volunteers. I mean, it's a completely volunteer-run uh, campaign. Uh, so, so that itself is, is is extremely encouraging. Like, where is that coming from? Is this thing has it been bottled up during the Duterte regime, and now it's being released, and people are like, okay, this is our time. Right, so that's that's certainly that's certainly a possibility. Uh, in in in, in uh, the book itself, I talk about the community pantries oh, yeah. and how these all volunteer uh, sort of collectives have sprung up, especially during the pandemic, to provide for uh, people's basic needs. Uh, you know, so, so, so and again, the I think the continuing commitment and dedication of journalists, uh, photographers, uh, all sorts of activists. I mean, these are all very encouraging. At the moment, they don't seem to amount to much. That is to say, they don't seem to have that major effect. But as I said, uh, you know, it, 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 it's it's all about you know patience. It's all about waiting it out. It's all about you know what what the future will hold, and uh, who knows? You know, things things might uh, dramatically change in the in the future. Because we said that too after 1986, yeah. <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Vince, congratulations on this book. I, I appreciate your time today. Thanks, thanks for this. Uh, thank you so much. The book is called The Sovereign Trickster, Death and Laughter in the Age of uh, Duterte. It's published by Duke University Press. Its author, Vincente Rafael, joined me on the line from Seattle in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Planta.